Hello, welcome to Eagle Tales, a podcast from the Central High School Foundation, keeping you connected to the nest through storytelling and original interviews. I'm your host, Josh Busey. Before we get started, though, a little bit about the foundation. We were established in 1996 to support present and future Central students. And today we are even more committed to preserving the values of a central high school education. The foundation supports the school through many activities, like building relationships with alumni, fundraising, student scholarships, teacher classroom grants, and so much more. We are proud of the accomplishments that our students, staff, and 35,000 alumni achieve every day. Your patronage not only supports Central, but also strengthens Eagle Nation. Be sure to visit our website to learn more at chsfomaha.org. It is my honor to introduce our guest for episode 11 of Eagle Tales, Dr. Thomas Novotny, who is a 1965 alumnus of Central and a 2022 Hall of Fame inductee, will be joining me shortly. As a public health professional, Novotny helped sound the alarm on the dangers of smoking, both here and globally. After joining the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an epidemiologist in the Office of Smoking and Health, he contributed to several Surgeon General reports on the dangers of tobacco. Among other CDC assignments was a liaison to the World Bank, where he worked on HIV AIDS policy. He also served as Assistant Surgeon General and Deputy Assistant Secretary for International and Refugee Health before moving to academia at the University of California. He has published more than 200 journal articles and four books, and also launched a nonprofit spotlighting the environmental damage of cigarette butts. Tom, welcome back to Omaha. Thanks for being here. It's always great to come back home, and thanks very much for having me. As our listeners like to know, we'd like to start every episode by letting our guests introduce themselves. So, Tom, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I am Tom Novotny. I'm 75 years old. I was a 1965 graduate of uh, Central High School and went to the University of Nebraska, University of Nebraska Medical Center. Uh, I've been living in California most of the time since 1973 and uh, a number of great uh, opportunities in uh, medicine and public health. Uh, and now uh, I'm sort of semi-retired, but still active in, in uh, many ways. When you were in Omaha, what neighborhood did you grow up in? What schools did you attend? Well, we were kind of have our roots in South Omaha, where the Czech community was, and uh, moved to uh, around 46th and Center uh, and 46th and uh, Walnut, uh, 4512 Walnut was our address uh, uh, during the time that I was at Central High School, uh, taking the bus from there every day. Talk to us a little about your time as a Central Eagle. What were you involved with? Way too much. <laughs> I, I actually, I loved Central High School because there were so many opportunities. Uh, I was in the Latin Club, uh, Outdoorsman's Club. I was in ROTC. I was in uh, the band, the orchestra, dance band. We had uh, Future Physicians Club as well. And uh, there was just so many things to do. It seemed like before school and after school and uh you know, during the uh, school day, the uh, music program was just terrific for me. When you were at Central, what do you remember that was going on in Omaha during that time? Well, this is the early 60s, so Omaha seemed very normal at that time. There wasn't, you know, a lot of political controversy. It was actually a pretty easy time uh, to be in high school at that time. 
were there any um, teachers or administrators that had an impact on your life that were at Central? Well, yeah, I think starting with J. Arthur Nelson, who was the principal at that time, uh, he was a, a memorable character, really stern. <laughs> a word to the wise. <laughs> yeah, that was him. That was his motto, a word to the wise is sufficient. But he was a great uh, administrator and uh, helped make that school actually one of the leading high schools, I think, in the country. I really uh, appreciated, I think, the music program. Bob Harrison was the music director at the time, and and he had the ability to get us instruments and, and allow us to, you know, expand our knowledge. He taught me to play the saxophone, which allowed me to then become sort of a, a, a semi-professional musician. I was able to work in uh, a lot of different bands and orchestras and uh, all along the way, and I still play uh, music in a, in a community band in uh, California. So I think the music program was something that really did me a lot of good. Um, I almost did that instead of medicine. In fact, uh, when I was uh, in medical school, after about a year of really hard work, I went and auditioned to get into music school. And the um, uh, head of the department there said, you know, you can um, be a doctor and do music on the side, but it doesn't work the other way around. So <laughs> I took his advice and, and pursued it that way. Uh, I think the other... Uh, uh, instructor that I had, and I'll mention this uh, later tonight, I think too, was Mr. Murray. I can't remember his first name. I think it might've been Charles. He was uh, English, uh, advanced place in English. And um, he taught me to write, which was a really important skill. I think that's something that isn't emphasized enough now, especially even in college. And he uh, not only taught me to write, but to read and understand and sort of you know, look at the big picture of what was being presented in, in mostly English and American literature. So I really appreciated him. And um, I remember uh, he also uh, taught me how to clean the typewriter so it wasn't making a big mess on the page. I was using an antique typewriter at the time, a manual typewriter. But he also, uh, uh, there's one episode that I, I just like to recall, uh, and it was I came by his office uh, just to, you know, I think for usual kind of session of counseling or whatever. And it was November 22nd, 1963. And on that day, uh, you know, he was sitting at his desk and he was crying. And it had been in response to the news that John Kennedy was assassinated. So that was a, a pretty big marker for me. And, uh, you know, that's what did happen during the time that I was at Central. And I remember that day and um, the way he reacted and the way we talked about it afterwards. And it was it had a great deal of influence, I think. You know, ever since then, that day, I still think about what happened, but also uh, uh, about him on that day, actually. When you were at Central, and I'm asking because you were involved at the music program, did you participate in the roadshow at yes. all? Yes. Yeah, we were, I was at the roadshow a lot. I was a manager of the roadshow uh, for the my senior year and uh, was in all sorts of uh, little skits in, in between things and uh uh, that was, I think, maybe my uh, favorite time of being at Central is getting ready for and, and producing and, you know, and playing in the roadshow. And uh, I actually had a chance to go see the roadshow about three years ago here. And it was fabulous. And the jazz band was great. And I, you know, I was just so pleased to see the amount of talent that still is just bubbling up like crazy at Central. Yeah, one of one of Central's probably most time-treasured traditions that they have over a hundred years for the roadshow. Yeah. Oh, it, was, it was fantastic again. You uh, in your life have received several medical degrees. Talk a little bit about maybe some of the learning experiences, residency experiences that you've had over that period of time. 
Well, I only have one medical degree. That's the MD, <laughs> but I also have a master's in public health, which is a you know I think a really important thing that uh, I was able to to accomplish or to at least to to learn uh, about public health. Uh, and this was uh, at Johns Hopkins University, uh, which is a, a great university. My medical degree at Nebraska was something that I realized was just the sort of door opener to everything else. Uh, it really was. I loved being a clinical physician and, and uh, Nebraska, you know, the clinical experience that I got there was really, really terrific. When I got to the West Coast and was working with people from across the country who had been in other medical schools, I was better prepared than many of them and had a, a really good experience uh, as a, an intern at Highland Hospital in Oakland, which is a, a battleground. <laughs> it was really a, a difficult, challenging place to, to learn medicine. And uh, I uh, then completed a family practice residency in Santa Rosa, which was a, mm -hmm. a really wonderful place because we really learned how to do medicine for rural, small town kind of uh, practice. And I stayed in the Santa Rosa area. Uh, it was in a town called Guerneville, which is on the Russian River, just north of San Francisco, about an hour and a half. And it was a really interesting place because on one hand, there were a lot of sort of back to nature hippies living there, <laughs> raising all sorts of organic things, including marijuana. And uh, then there was a lot of kind of retired firemen and policemen from San Francisco. And then there was a large gay community. It was a gay resort, actually. And in 1978, 79, 80, we started seeing the, some of the first cases of HIV AIDS in this area. And what the heck is this? It's, you know, all these unusual fevers and, and lymphadenopathies and, and illnesses that ended up in really severe condition. And, you know, that encouraged me to then think about public health. Uh, that was a, a, a real bellwether sort of event. And I heard the... Um, uh, assistant director of science for the CDC uh, at a conference talk about this, not that this is really going to be a big deal. And it certainly was. But at the same time, I realized that so much of what I was doing was patching people up and not being able to really affect the sort of progression of disease from the beginning to prevent it. And so public health was a, a more attractive thing for me. And I had uh, heard about the uh, CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is a postdoctoral fellowship in applied epidemiology for MDs and PhDs and other kinds of doctoral uh, scientists, et cetera. And so I applied for that and um, was able to then get accepted into that program and that converted my career into public health. That was another one of the greatest sort of opportunities that I had to uh, engage in something that was really uh, that allowed me to be passionate about it. Uh, that was public health. So yeah, so that was a, a great experience. And then after that, I got the master's at, at Hopkins while I was employed. It was a sort of weekends, evenings kind of a process. It took me about four years to do that. <laughs> so anyway, that was uh, another opportunity to um, get more scientifically grounded in public health as well. Epidemiology, epidemiologists, they've become kind of household phrases over the past couple of years, whether it's COVID-19, monkeypox, other things like that. If you don't mind sharing, what were some of your takeaways of like what we've all witnessed the past couple of years? And then maybe what could we do to prepare for future outbreaks? Yeah, I mean, we have lots of challenges that are dependent on data and information and, and, and good communications. 
I think uh, recently what we've learned is that communications have to be based on solid science and have to be based with clarity and with uh, the ability to uh, reach people in the uh, arenas that they work and live. And uh, I think there were a lot of mistakes made about uh, the communications process during the COVID epidemic. But CDC, when I was uh, in, in that training program, taught us to talk about uh, public health and to be able to communicate and to write clearly so that the uh, science uh, can translate into public health action. And I think those communication skills are really important, whether they're written, whether they're social media, whether they're uh, public service announcements or whatever. But I think that's what we've really learned to, to be much more organized, careful, and effective in, in that sort of communications. I mentioned in your biography at the beginning of the program that you work for the CDC in the Office of Smoking and Health. Talk to us a little bit about what was going on at that time and why the CDC kind of sounded the alarm about tobacco. Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendously interesting history. Tobacco use, cigarettes were really sort of uh, an 1800s phenomenon. The manufacturing of cigarettes by machine made it possible that people consume these in large numbers. And, you know, and it didn't seem like it was a, a big deal until uh, the 1940s, 1950s. And then, of course, 1965, when the first Surgeon General's report came out and said officially that cigarettes can kill you. Lung cancer, heart, cardiovascular disease, other kinds of cancers, lung disease. That really changed things a lot. Uh, it put the government squarely in the place of, we've got to do something about this. It's a preventable health problem. And uh, lung cancer, for instance, was a rare event back around 1900. And now it's the most common cause of cancer. And cigarette smoking is the leading preventable cause of death in this country. There's over 400,000 deaths per year that can be attributed to tobacco use. That's out of, it's about 20% of all of our mortality. So it's a huge issue. And uh, it was a huge issue that was pointed out by successive surgeon generals. And then uh, I came into the uh, CDC around the time that uh, C. Everett Koop was the surgeon general. You may remember him. He had this very identifiable beard <laughs> and he was, a, he was a very effective communicator. The interesting thing about him was that because of his sort of very conservative kind of practice ideas and, and history was opposed by the uh, public health community very vigorously. He almost didn't get appointed. After he was appointed, he became the most sort of effective public health communicator and paid attention to the right things, spoke out against uh, the discriminatory practices about HIV AIDS, spoke out very effectively on tobacco use. And I had the opportunity to work with him and meet him and provide him with the material that he then presented uh, to the public. And I, I was, you know, uh, really uh, fortunate to be able to have that, that experience. So uh, for me, that's what happened. What I uh, tried to focus on as part of that uh, process was uh, economic costs of smoking. And I um, left uh, Washington in 1992 and was assigned by the CDC to the University of California Berkeley School of Health as a liaison. CDC put people here and there in schools of public health to help lubricate the connections between academia and, and, uh, and the government and also to recruit. I was recruited into the public health service. And so uh, while I was at Berkeley, I got a, an economist and a sociologist and a statistician and a couple of grad students. And we did a study on the economic costs of smoking and published this in the CDC's weekly newsletter 
the MMWR it's called. And uh, shortly after that, we were contacted by some lawyers uh, who <laughs> were representing the states and uh, wanted to see how we made these calculations and uh, move from there to bringing lawsuits against the tobacco industry to recover costs attributable to cigarette smoking on the healthcare systems in each of the states. And that ended up as something called a multi-state agreement, which uh, provided about $287 billion in uh, recovered costs to the states uh, that uh, is still continuing to be paid uh, out by the tobacco industry. You mentioned it before, the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s. What were some of those challenges and maybe things that you were proud of that like you accomplished during that time? Yeah, this was one of the most devastating things to happen uh, to our country. Uh, it was a setup for all sorts of discriminatory behavior against LGBTQ people. And uh, the idea that uh, this was some sort of curse that they were suffering as a result of their behavior. There was also discrimination against IV drug users uh, who uh, were also affected by uh, HIV AIDS at the time. Uh, and it, it became a real challenge to get not just the government, but lots of other um, uh, you know, important players to take this seriously as, as it was something that didn't affect just those populations, but it really spread across you know, all sorts of people. It was passed from maternal to child transmission as well especially uh, internationally. And so uh, I think, you know, the, the discrimination and the, the lack of attention from the very first, it took a long time before uh, President Reagan even was able to mention the word HIV AIDS and uh, to commit government, uh, you know, uh, activities toward it. That was where uh, Anthony Fauci actually uh, was uh, uh, first active was on that and provided an, uh, opportunities to, for some of these affected communities to actually become part of the policymaking process at NIH. So that was an interesting process. When I was um, in my EIS uh, the training period of two years, I did a, a survey drawing blood from IV drug users in Denver and drew blood on about 200 people and found, I don't know, 10 or 12 of them to be HIV positive. And at that time, there were no medications, no treatment to then have to tell these individuals, look, you've got HIV, and, uh, and really I don't have much else to offer you except the knowledge that you're now infected and you shouldn't infect anybody else. It was pretty devastating for them. And it really pointed out the urgency, the need for the development of drugs, which eventually now we have. And I think what we learned was that an epidemic such as that requires immediate, strong government-led action, but as well uh, across multiple sectors, whether it's business, whether it's education, whether it's, uh, you know, social services, et cetera, all has to be part of that response. It's not just, a, you know, a matter of drawing blood on people and telling them that they're sick. You've been involved with a lot of big projects. You know, there's been some pretty remarkable things that have happened during your time in, in the World Bank or at the CDC or even ac in academia. You kind of touched on it before, but what do you think is the passion behind like some of the work that you've done? Like, what do you draw on for inspiration or what, why do you think you got into those fields in the, in the first place? I think it is rooted in my clinical practice and I was a real doctor in a small town and had patients who had these illnesses that were caused by preventable 
risk factors, for instance. And I'll never forget uh, the woman who was the administrative secretary for our residency program in Santa Rosa, Thelma uh, was her name. Or not, no, it was not Thelma. It was Carol Boldick. I don't remember now. Anyway, Carol was, uh, was my patient. And she came to me because, you know, she was coughing. She's 47 years old. And, uh, you know, so I got an x-ray and she had this huge tumor in her lung. And I thought, here's a woman who's vigorous, great life. Uh, you know, we valued her uh, very much. And she's got less than six months to live. You know, she had smoked most of her life. And, you know, I took care of her until the end. And I thought, I, you know, there's got to be something better that we can do on this. So it's those sort of individual patients, you know, and I had patients who had HIV AIDS and who were, you know, just deteriorating uh, without anything uh, that could be done. And yet we knew that it was a preventable illness. If there were tools, messages, uh, you know, policies that can be put into place. And to do that, it's a little hard for just, you know, at the, by being just a small town family doctor, it, it helps to, for instance, move to Washington and, and you know, try to move the needle forward on policy and, and science and wherever it can be done from that more uh, lofty level, you know. So uh, I think one needs to understand what happens at the patient and community level and then see what you can do to actually influence things at the more uh, broad decision-making policy level as well. You were involved with a lot of what I would, you know, heavy taxing, kind of emotionally taxing things at work. What did you do to kind of get away, unwind, or how did you kind of compartmentalize so you weren't taking work home with you? Or were you? <laughs> I think what I did was I looked for adventures. When I left Nebraska, I took sailing lessons, I took scuba diving lessons, I took mountain climbing lessons, and I had a chance to do uh, a lot of these things in sort of an extreme way. And that's what I, I really sort of really appreciated in my life. And I, I, I don't think I passed up many opportunities to do that. Uh, I still play music, and as I mentioned, that's another great outlet for me. It's, uh, it's just, I've been able to play in all sorts of different kinds of uh, groups. And, uh, uh, so that one continues to be that process. My wife and I now, um, but we're kind of semi-retired have been traveling quite a lot. So traveling was another piece and, and adventure travel, especially is, uh, what I really enjoyed. You're about to be inducted into the central high school hall of fame. Do you remember when you found out when you were going to be selected and your emotions at that time, how you were feeling? Well, I thought that was terrific because I, I look back on Central as this great formative time in my life and so many opportunities that I had to, you know, kind of learn new things. And and uh, I thought it was just a terrific school uh, then and it is now. And I'm really proud to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I saw some of the other names and I was really blown away. Gail Sayers, he was, a, he was there uh, around the time I was. And, uh, you know, many, many others that, that I, I realized. And now I realize there's a few people that I'd like to nominate as well. Uh, some of my friends who uh, have done some great things that uh, have moved on uh, as well. Absolutely. And so for our listeners, nominations are good for three years of consideration. And we induct 10, in, uh, 10 people annually into the Hall of Fame. If you can share, are there any upcoming projects or things that you're excited about? Yeah, I, my work on tobacco has evolved into something. Now, you mentioned this, um, uh, tobacco and the environment. Because the environment is another, you know, great 
concern that we should all have uh, with global warming and climate change and the other kinds of insults to the environment that uh, humans have caused. One of those is uh, the tobacco industry uh, from the very beginning. It's really hard on agricultural practices uh, from that part that is, you know, it's grown in 120 countries and uh, many of those are very poor countries and it displaces food production. So from the very beginning, it's, it's, it's a difficult environmental problem. But what also uh, is happening is that there are 6 trillion cigarettes produced globally every year. Almost all of them, almost all of them contain a plastic filter. And we are now really getting concerned about plastics in our environment, not just in our environment, but in our bodies too. Is micro Microplastics, that's right. The filter is a non-functional, has no health protective value whatsoever, and it's made out of cellulose acetate, which is a plant-based plastic that doesn't biodegrade. And it's the most commonly picked up item off of beach and urban cleanups across the world every year. And it's an unnecessary pollutant. And so um, I did start this non-governmental organization called the Cigarette But Pollution Project. And I've been working with the World Health Organization, the California Department of Public Health, several big uh, environmental groups like the Sierra Club and um, the Truth Initiative in Washington is an anti-tobacco uh, NGO. And we're trying to uh, raise the level of attention and also implement some policies at local, state, and national levels to eliminate the cigarette filter as a piece of plastic pollutant that pollution that doesn't need to be there. And also, by doing so, will probably change a lot of people's behavior because it'll make it harder to smoke, less attractive to smoke, and uh, won't, you know, just it won't fool them into thinking they're doing something to protect their own health. So this is my kind of main project now in my uh, retirement years, but it's actually moving forward. Uh, Good, that's there, great. There's a, a, a plastics treaty that's not being negotiated, multinational treaty that will ban single-use plastic items, whether it's cigarette filters or perhaps straws or plastic bags or whatever. And we need to do this because the plastics are not going away. And uh, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm committed to right now. I always like to end our podcast by asking if there's a favorite central memory that you might have. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it would be, I, I think it would be the roadshow. And I, I think it's, it's something that uh, uh, we put so much time and energy into and felt so proud of it that uh, I think that was really my, my favorite uh, central memory, uh, especially the one my senior year. And I, you know, I remember, playing a clarinet solo, uh, during the, during the, uh, uh, one of the skits and, and it was, uh, it was great to have my family there and to, uh, uh, feel that we did such a, uh, you know, hard work and, and it turned out okay. So that, that would be my favorite memory, I think. Well, Tom, thank you for coming on the show and I best of luck in your future endeavors. Well, thank you very much for having me and I'm best of luck to everybody out there. Once again, I want to extend a big thank you to today's guest, 1965 alumnus, Dr. Thomas Novotny. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed episode 11 of Eagle Tales, and we'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can email us at connect at chsfomaha.org or reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for the Central High School Foundation. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so you can be notified of new episodes as they are released. A complete library of previous episodes can also be found on our website, chsfomaha.org. 
And remember, near or far, you are always part of the Central High School family. Go Eagles! Go Eagles! Ha, ha, ha.